0: Luke chapter 2, our topic, we're looking at the birth of Christ, this is the third message, and we'll uh, finish today, and we're assign, the sign to the shepherds. Uh, the sign to the shepherds. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. World should be res- registered. This census which first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered and everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was while they were there, the days were complete for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. <coughs> for it is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is called Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. And Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. This end of the reading of God's word. So we're up to verse 12. After telling the shepherds that the baby was just born in Bethlehem, the city of David, and that the baby was the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Lord, the angel gives the shepherds a sign to verify the announcement and locate the newborn Savior. Verse 12. This will be assigned to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now the angel, knowing that the shepherds are men of faith, men of piety, they know that they will seek out the child <clears throat> and assures them that they will find the newborn. Bethlehem was a small city, a small village, and finding a baby in an animal shed in a... Uh, feeding trough uh, should not be that hard. I mean, it's unusual for a baby to be in a feeding trough. <clears throat> the word for babe, Greek, breathos, is used for a newborn child. Luke 18.15, Acts seven nineteen, Second 2 Timothy 3.15, 1 Peter 2, two, And occasionally, the same word is used for unborn babies in the womb. Luke one forty one forty four. 44 So the idea that unborn babies are lumps of flesh that we can murder is certainly unbiblical. Although the appearance of the angel together with a bright heavenly light was itself a sign of the truth of the angel's pronouncement, the shepherds are to be personal witnesses of the babe born to the virgin in very humble circumstances as another important confirming sign. Consequently, there are really four signs that signify or confirm that this baby is the Savior who is the Messiah and Lord. Number one, there's the fulfillment of prophecy for this child is born to a virgin in the city of David, to the parents of the lineage of David. Number two, the appearance of the angel in heavenly light, and his God and the God given announcement, which is a miraculous sign itself. Number three, the fulfillment of the angels' uh, promise of them finding the child in a state of humiliation. And number four, there is also the praise and appearance of the heavenly host glorifying God. <clears throat> the shepherds will spread abroad what they have witnessed, verse 17. So from the very beginning, Yahweh made it perfectly clear to Israel that the promised Messiah had come into their midst. But the political and religious leadership, together with most of the people in Israel, would not believe it. For they rejected the biblical teaching about the Messiah being the suffering servant. They rejected Isaiah fifty three, and just a word. Uh, last night I watched this stupid documentary. It, it's on YouTube. It was um, originally on PBS, called "From uh, From Jesus to the Christ," and it was all liberals. And the whole thing was written by liberals. And the whole supposition is that Jesus of Nazareth was just a regular Jew born of regular parents, he was not born of a virgin. And, you know, they're interviewing people from all these liberal seminaries, like Union Seminary and all these... And uh, the idea that Jesus was just a rabbi, and then after he died, the apostles, the disciples, made up the story of him rising from the dead and the story of him being the Messiah and the story of him doing all these things, miracles, and they turned him into the Christ and the idea that he's God and he should be worshipped. So he's just... he was, In other words... The testimony of the New Testament, according to liberal Christianity, modern seminaries, of course, which is picked up by Time, Newsweek, and all the uh, secular, atheistic uh, people in the media, is that it's all nonsense. But what we have here is a testimony that is the exact opposite. From the very birth, he's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's God, a very God, born and born, come down from heaven. So this idea presented, I don't understand why people would bother to go to church. If the Bible is law, a lie, if it's not true, if it was just made up after the death of Christ and it's none of it's actually true, why would you bother going to church? What's the point? You'd be better off surfing or bowling. That the Savior was born into such humble circumstances indicated that the Deliverer was born into a condition of life no better than their own. This was a sign that Jesus could sympathize with his people, that he was a savior and friend to the poor, lowly, and suffering. We looked at that last week. His existence and purpose was the opposite of worldly emperors and kings. Pride is the character of all the sons of Adam. Humility is the mark of the Son of God and of all his followers. As Jesus came into the world as a babe, we learn that he is able to sympathize with us from the beginning of our life and that his mission was one of tenderness and love. In a state of humiliation, he came to save, not to condemn. Yes, he's the all-powerful judge. He will judge humanity at, at the second coming. But the first coming, he's coming as the humble servant to save. The incarnation exhibited by the baby lying in a manger reveals to us that in order to save man, the Son of God voluntarily embraced the humility of divine condensation for God to overturn the effects of the fall on for the elect and the fallen created order. The Son had to come into the fallen world in a state of weakness, subject to the infirmities of the fall, even though he had no sin. Now let's look at the purpose, uh, the praise of the heavenly host. and I should have probably... We should probably call this the Praise of the Heavenly Host because that's the main topic of the sermon. With the birth of the Savior accomplished and the coming of Christ, the priest-king, announced the time to celebrate this newborn has come. The angel who announced, and he's not floating up in the sky, he's standing there on the ground with the shepherds, is suddenly joined by a multitude of angels, a heavenly army, praising God. The greatness and the importance of Jesus of Nazareth, this person Jesus, is demonstrated by the fact that God sends an entire army to give him glory for sending the Savior to earth. And here's verse 14. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. Peace good toward men. Now, before we analyze the content of this praise, let us contemplate the fact that the first praise of God for Christ on earth is by angels. There was a multitude of heavenly hosts. The word multitude indicates a great number of many thousands. Thousands of angels. I mean, this is amazing that these guys witnessed this. <coughs> the word host Stradia refers to an army or an encamped army. And this passage, of course, sheds light on what Jesus meant when he said that he could summon 12 legions of angels at a moment's notice. That's 120,000 angels when they came to arrest him. You don't need to whip out the sword, Peter. Put it away. I could speak one word and I'd have 120,000 angels at my beck and call. Now keep in mind, one angel killed 200,000 Assyrians in one night, to give you an idea how powerful angels are. It is ironic that a vast army of angels have descended to announce the coming of peace to planet Earth through what is presently a helpless baby in a manger. Of course, these were unfallen holy angels who serve God day and night. The word angel in Greek, angelos in Hebrew, mal- malach um, uh, means messenger. They are spirit beings higher than men, Hebrews 2.7 and Psalm 8.5, which were created long before the creation of our universe. They're far, far stronger than men. Even men with weapons, 2 Peter 2.11, 2 Thessalonians 1.7. And can all and are also superior intellectually. 2 Samuel 14, 17 and 20. Angels can appear as simple men, Genesis 18, 2, 19, 1. Uh, here's Abraham having lunch with some angels, and he's not aware they're angels at first. Same with Lot. Or they can appear with bright and a bright, awesome countenance that terrifies men, Judges 13.6. And sometimes they appear in white, lustrious clothes. And that's super bright. Good angels usually appear to men or women who are important in redemptive history. Abraham, Moses, Daniel, Manoah's wife, Jesus, the woman at the empty tomb, uh, Luke 24.1-10, Peter, Paul, John, etc. These shepherds are somewhat of an exception and are apparently chosen to be special witnesses of the birth of Christ and its circumstances. That's the main point of this, is that we have special witnesses from the very birth of Christ. This idea that which is taught in seminaries, that even Jesus didn't know who he was, it was kind of a thing that was revealed over time. No, from the very moment of his birth, here's the King, here's the Messiah, here's the Lord, here's the Savior of the world. Now, God's use of angels to announce important events has precedence in Scripture. An angel gave Abraham and Sarai the, the news of adva- in advance regarding the conception and birth of Isaac, Genesis eighteen nine and following. Similarly, an angel told Manoah and his wife, who had been barren, Sarah, Sarah had been barren, there's a pattern, about the coming birth and ministry of Samson, Judges thirteen two to 5 The high-ranking angel, Gabriel, Who's considered an archangel, announced the birth of John the Baptist to his father Zachariah before uh, his wife, who had been uh, who had been barren, also became pregnant. Luke two eight to fifteen. Angels execute God's will on earth, and they delight to do so, as Paul says, Hebrews 1.14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to serve for the sake of those who obtain salvation? Okay, they're serving God, and they're serving the church, for God. Now our text shows angels' great interest in the work of Christ for men as well as their sympathy, kindness, and love towards the elect. So we learn something about angels here. These holy angels had known the pre-incarnate Son for thousands of years before the incarnation. They knew all about his infinite power, glory, love, holiness, and majesty. In the days of Isaiah, about the time that King, King Uzziah died, they witnessed the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, Isaiah 6.3. They knew from the time of the fall, Genesis 3.15, that God would provide a way of salvation for man. They were aware of Gabriel's announcement to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. When they witnessed the birth of Jesus in a condition of poverty and great humility, they no doubt marveled at God's love and the Son's condensation on behalf of the elect. Consequently, their praise of God at this birth came naturally and spontaneously. This event is one of those things in redemptive history which angels desire to look into, 1 Peter 1.12. Scripture indicates they're very interested in God's saving of the elect. They're very helpful in, in, in uh, ministering during this time. God's holy angels have compassion for lost, condemned sinners. They rejoice in the fact that this newborn will deliver millions of people from the guilt, penalty, and slavery to sin. Let us seek a deeper knowledge of the wickedness, misery, and condemnation of sin. This will give us a greater thankfulness and appreciation for Christ's amazing salvation. Now, wicked humanists, of course, love to complain about the doctrine of hell and eternal punishment for sin because they don't see the great wickedness of sin, the sinfulness of sin, the evil and rebelliousness of sin. If God would open their blind eyes, then they would see the amazing grace, mercy, and love of God that sin his only begotten Son into the world to die for those who deserve punishment, who are rebels and enemies of God. He died for his enemies. He died for those who didn't like him. He died for those who hate him. And of course, secular humanists complain because they they believe everybody should automatically get a ticket to heaven as if men are God. No, men are sinners. Men are guilty. Men deserve to go to hell. And uh, the old great John Gershner, the theologian from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, everybody was talking about, well, the problem of evil. And he wrote a little booklet called The Problem of God's Mercy. (laughs) Evil is easy to explain. What's amazing is that God saved people who deserve to go to hell. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This mighty army of angels... Gladly left the throne room of God to praise God before the shepherds for the blessed incarnation of the Son of God. Their praise was short, to the point, and expressed the most amazing and blessed truths that we should all take to heart. Even though Jesus came not for angels, but for men, the holy angels know that nothing glorifies God more in the creation. Than the redemptive work of Christ. Nothing glorifies God more than the redemptive work of Christ. Remember that. Luke says that the angels were praising God and saying, which does not indicate whether they were speaking, singing, or chanting. We don't know. Everybody, you know, most commentators assume, yeah, they were singing a hymn. Well, we don't know. It just says they were saying, they were speaking. We don't know whether they were singing. Maybe they were. Maybe they were chanting. Maybe they were just speaking praise. Maybe they were speaking loudly. Now, the fact that their words are highly poetic does not imply that they were singing, for both Mary and Zacharias spoke in a poetic manner, yet did not sing their poetic lines. The vast majority of people speak of them singing due to the suppositions and traditions. Whether they were singing or not does not affect the awesomeness of this celebration or the incredibly rich and edifying content of their praise. The language or method of speaking by the angels uh, is unusual and cryptic in the Greek, for definite articles and verbs are not used for a structured syntax. The praise contains two lines. The first is a praise to God. The second contains the reasons for this praise, both of which flow directly from Jesus' perfect salvation. So we have a doxology to God and a congratulations to elect men. Well, Let's look at it. Glory to God in the highest. The praise begins with glory to God in the highest. In verse 9, glory is referred to, uh, glory referred to the bright appearance of the heavenly hosts, the heavenly light that was a reflection of God. Here, it refers to the holy majesty of God that deserves special honor for the achievement of salvation in a manner uh, that does not compromise God's righteous and holy nature, yet truly pays the penalty for sin and guilt. Christ's perfect salvation exalts God's character, for Yahweh remains perfectly just or righteous while justifying guilty sinners, Romans 3.26. And that's amazing. And that separates Christianity from every other religion in the whole world. Judaism, Islam, the cults, Unitarianism, all of them teach salvation by works. you got to do something to achieve it. And, of course, we know that good works don't erase sin. Only the blood of Christ does that. And we know that our filthy, sin-stained works are not good enough to merit salvation. Only the perfect righteousness of Christ can do that. So this is truly amazing, and the angels understand this, and they're praising God for it. Glory to God whose infinite wisdom, kindness and love designed this special saving favor in such a manner that not one divine attribute is contradicted or overshadowed. Glory to God, who designed a way to truly save men, who love their men, who loved their sin, who denied their guilt, who relished their rebellion, and hated the true God. This salvation is wrought not against man's will, but by changing man's heart and regeneration. The angels understand that now that the holy baby has come, the time for the achievement of this amazing salvation has come. When they saw the divine word who had come down from his throne, now lying as a babe in a manger so that he could save his people, their love and adoration of God could not be contained. Their lips shouted with joy the praises of God. Now, we don't know a lot about angels, but we're going to know a lot about them after we go to heaven. But clearly, they exalt God for sending Christ more than any other thing. It's the most amazing thing there is, what Christ did. Now, the word highest in this passage does not refer to worship to the highest degree, but rather to the highest heavens. God who dwells in heaven beyond our physical universe is to be praised for what Jesus accomplishes here on earth. In our Lord's triumphal entry, his disciples shouted, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Luke 19.38 Since God is infinite infinite and perfect in his attributes, his intrinsic glory does not change. God cannot have any more glory than he already has as God. He's perfect. He's infinite in perfections. As a saved people, however, we glorify him for who he is and what he has done in salvation history. We praise his character and his grace, mercy, justice, love, etc. As these attributes shape human history. We exalt and honor God and his faithfulness, his covenant love. These holy angels had praised God long before the universe was created. And they certainly praise God for his amazing creation of the physical universe. God deserves praise for every star, every flower, every blade of grass, the mountains high, the oceans blue, the beautiful rivers, the magnificent forests, gorgeous flowers, every sunset. The birds in the air, the fish in the sea, and the beasts of the ground, and all their multifaceted beauty elicit the praise of Yahweh. But the love of God revealed in the birth of Jesus is something far more amazing, beautiful, and praiseworthy than even the physical creation. Now, I have a little, outside the, my office window, I have a little uh, thing where I put seeds for the birds, and I, I'll see 30 different kind of birds in one day. And the beauty of their song and the beauty of the birds is amazing. But nothing is more beautiful, nothing is more praiseworthy than Christ coming to earth on our behalf. Though creation elicits a majestic shouting of praise, it does not reach the height of the Redeemer's recreation. Let us meditate on the glory of the Incarnation. In the work of Jesus, every attribute of God is magnified. God's love, justice, mercy, and compassion is exalted beyond our finite understanding. So I hope you see how wicked, sinful, unthankful, and irrational it is. It is Uh, it is not to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and to give him the glory and the honor that he deserves. See, people don't realize unbelief and not worshiping Christ is the chief of sins. He deserves our praise. He deserves to be worshiped. He deserves to be served. He deserves that we obey him. Nothing glorifies God like the precious redemptive work of Christ. And let us never forget it and let us not take it for granted. Let us not be lukewarm about our love for Christ. Let us not forget our first love of Christ. Look what he's done. And look what he continues to do as the exalted Lord at the right hand of God in heaven interceding for us at all times. Let us note that also salvation glorifies God. It does not glorify man. Is there anything in the angelic praise about man? These angels were not Arminians. They did not divide, divide the glory between God and man. They did not divide the crown between Christ and sinful men. They did not believe in a system where God only makes salvation possible if men cooperate. They did not hold to the unbiblical view that salvation rests upon man's uh, unencumbered free will, as if men who were dead in trespasses and sins could generate their own autonomous faith. The holy angels of God take no delight in such heretical Christ-dishonoring rubbish God receives all the glory for our salvation. We are saved by Christ alone through faith alone, which is a gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8-9. So glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. If you have a, a version of Christianity where men take part of the credit for salvation, either through works like in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy or by this exalted view of man's free will, as if God Christ died for them, but it doesn't become actual unless men exercise their free will, then you're a heretic and you're not glorifying God properly. And then peace on earth, the people of God's good pleasure. The glory to God in heaven, in the highest heaven, is because the Christ will bring peace on earth. The word peace, Greek, arene, Hebrew, shalom, when used in association with what the Savior and his perfect redemption brings, is comprehensive. It refers first and foremost to the peace established by the bloody cross on Calvary. By suffering in the place of his people and enduring the full penalty that they deserve for their guilt, vicarious atonement, Jesus established a perfect peace between a holy, righteous, and just God and sinful men. Romans 5, one, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the, our Lord Jesus Christ. The enmity between God and men due to their sin and guilt can only be removed when that sin is expiated, that is removed, or washed away by Jesus' blood, and theologians call that expiation. Once the guilt is removed, your penalty is removed, your guilt is removed. God's wrath and the curse of the law Galatians 3:13 is propitiated. Romans 3:24 to 25 being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Through Christ's sacrificial death we are reconciled to God Romans 510 to 10 to 11. Through Jesus' redemptive work the breach that existed between God and guilty sinners has been fully Perfectly and permanently healed. God's alienation from us, which was just and based on his righteous and holy character, that hates sin with a perfect hatred, has been removed by our justification through Christ's blood. This is amazing. Think about it. God doesn't overlook sin, He doesn't pretend that it does not exist, He doesn't simply blot it out and say it doesn't exist but has a son pay for it in full at the cross. Once again, this separates Christianity from Islam, from Unitarianism, from Pharisaical modern Judaism, which follows the Talmud, not the Bible, which all teach salvation through works. You turn over a new leaf, God overlooks your sin. No, the only way sin, the guilt of sin can be removed is the precious blood of Christ. That's the only way. And so, modern Judaism completely overlooks the whole sacrificial system. They have to, because they rejected Christ, who is the only sacrifice for sin. We are justified and declared righteous in the heavenly court, because our sins have been reckoned to Christ's account on the cross, and Jesus' perfect righteousness has been imputed to us, that is, to everyone who believes in him. The peace established between God and man, therefore, radiates outward and brings peace between men and other men. As Paul says, and this is Ephesians 2:13 to 17. But now in Christ Jesus you are who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one who has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near. For through him, we have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The Church of Christ is a multinational body. There's no room for racism in it. It is a holy brotherhood in Christ, where love, fellowship, and mutual edification reigns. As the gospel evens the nations, and they are discipled in covenant with Christ, a period of international harmony and peace will be established. As God said very clearly through Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 2, 2 (coughs) 2-4. Listen to this carefully. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. When you see that expression, latter days, it means the new covenant era. Peter said, we're in the latter days. Get this premillennial evangelical heresy out of your nonsense, out of your mind that it refers to the time right before Christ comes back. No, it refers to the whole new covenant era. It'll come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. That's referring to the church. It's using Old Testament language to describe New Testament reality. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Now it takes faith to believe that. Because we're not seeing... That's not happening right now, obviously. It will happen. And here's what uh, Edward J. Young, the great commentator, says about this passage. These words begin a description of the blessed results which flow from the just rule and judgment of the Lord. This peace is genuine and hence all the prerequisites of true peace are to be found. There could only be true peace when the hearts of men have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, the third person of the ever-blessed Trinity and by a new nature given to them. Consequently, when the hearts of men have been regenerated, we understand that the barriers which separated God from man have been removed. The peace of which Isaiah speaks is not so much a peaceful attitude or disposition which man maintains toward God, as it is a peaceful disposition which God entertains toward man. What had caused God to look upon man in wrath and judgment was man's sin. This sin has now been removed. And so God regards man with favor, and therefore approaches man with a gracious offer of salvation and brings man to himself, giving to him a new heart and declaring that such stands in a right relation to himself. Man, therefore, born again from the dead, now seeks peace and pursues it. In so far as he is now true to the new principle of life within him, for sin still remains and prevents him from acting in perfect consistency with his new nature, he seeks peace. Isaiah represents the spiritual blessings by a picture of man ceasing to learn the arts of war and turning rather to those of peace. The peace herein described is not one which can be obtained by the means of what is today called pacifism, nor for that matter by any human efforts. Man unaided cannot establish on this earth a condition of peace. Only God can bring peace. The fulfillment of the present prophecy began with the angels' peace on earth, and more specifically with the first preaching of the gospel. As Kieser well puts it, What is herein described is the blessed result of the preaching of the gospel, peace on earth, through the common faith in God the Lord. End of quote. Yes. That's what God says is going to happen. And it's not for some far-off thing in the future uh, where Christ supposedly reigns from Jerusalem on earth. Premillennialism is unbiblical. Christ rules from the right hand of God in heaven. He doesn't come back to earth until the second coming, and when he comes back, there is no more death or sin. Now, given the current state of affairs in this world, such passages are no longer believed by most professing Christians and or are explained away spiritualized. Premillennialists put it in the future when Christ rules as a dictator in Jerusalem and he forces people to be peaceful with each other by his supernatural power while he's ruling as a dictator in Jerusalem. That's nonsense. He's at the right hand of God and he's ruling... The Bible is crystal clear. His rule begins at the resurrection. And then amillennialism, and I understand why people are attracted to it, simply spiritualizes all these kind of promises away, where they're really not going to happen even close to being literal. It's just some thing about, well, there'll be churches here and there, and Christians will sort of have peace with each other. But we must not ignore such passage or attempt to twist them to fit our own preconceptions. The literal victory of the gospel will come to pass. It is a great error to let the current headlines or current recent history determine our eschatology. Biblical faith trusts in the promises and it looks beyond current events. Now in discussing this word peace, we need to keep in mind that in the Bible it does not simply indicate an absence of war, or a personal feeling that we have peace with God. For it has worldwide social implications. In scripture, it evokes a whole social order and culture of well-being, health, prosperity, blessing, security, and harmony. Salvation in the broad sense, which includes sanctification and covenant faithfulness, under normal circumstances, brings covenant blessings to a whole social Order. Psalm twenty nine, eleven, the Lord will bless his people with peace. Psalm thirty two, fifteen to eighteen. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace, and the effects of righteousness quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Now, that doesn't sound like San Francisco or Oakland or L.A., does it? And here's Isaiah forty-eight seventeen to 18. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. In Isaiah 1, 18 to 20, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In nations and cities, as they cast off the biblical world and life view, For secular humanism and antinomianism, there is a lack of peace. The divorce rate skyrockets, crime rises, political chaos, arbitrariness, infighting becomes rampant, for every man does what is right in his own eyes. In liberal cities, criminals are pampered and law-abiding citizens suffer the consequences. Murderers are let out of jail people do commit horrible crimes and they're not even kept in jail. They're let out right away. There is a connection between faith and obedience and between covenant faithfulness and societal peace. Let us not restrict the peace that Jesus brings to the saving of a few souls here and there or to a personal piety. It is much broader than that and ultimately our Lord will recreate the whole created order. God tells us that the coming messianic salvation will continue to expand and with it peace and social justice, not as defined by the left-wing lunatics, but as defined by scripture, will prosper as well. And here's the passage we should all memorize. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, the people who are the focus of the newborn salvation and peace are described as the people of God's good pleasure. This could be paraphrased as, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Consequently, the statement does not mean that salvation and peace comes to men who possess a good will, a number of translations give this impression. For example, the Douwe, which is the Old Roman Catholic Version, says, to men of goodwill, the Revised Standard Version reads, among men with whom he is pleased. It rather means that salvation is bestowed upon those who are favored by God. The point is that the salvation of sinners depends on God's grace and mercy, not on man's free will. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7-11, in him We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure, there's that expression, the good pleasure which he purposed in himself, did you hear that? He purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him, in him. Also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's good favor or good pleasure, as well as the kindness and love of God, Titus 3.4, John 3.16, is restricted to the elect, the invisible church, Christ's sheep. Here's what Jesus said. John 10.14, 16, 25, 29. I am the good shepherd, the, sheep, the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my by own. I lay my life down for the sheep. Jesus answered them, that's the unbelieving Jews, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name may bear witness to me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. God's free choice of those whom he wills to favor and save has nothing to do with anything within the sinners themselves, but lies wholly within God himself. So the Roman Catholic doctrine of human merit and the Arminian doctrine of man's autonomous free will are both rejected by the angelic hosts and the Apostle Paul. Romans 3, 10-11 and 8, 7-8 There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Is there anybody who seeks out Christ? No, nobody does. God has to reach down and grab him out of the gutter, out of the mire of sin. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh, those who are not regenerated by the Holy Spirit, cannot please God. And then the shepherds go to see the babe. With the angel's mission complete, they return to heaven, to the throne room of God. Their heavenly destination corresponds to their heavenly origin, as in verse 13. The shepherds are in awe and amazement at what they had just witnessed and they act upon it immediately. Verse 15, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem. Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing, literally in Greek, this word, this saying, this promise that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And we'll just be very brief. There are two noteworthy things about the shepherds' reaction. First, they attribute the angelic message directly to God. They do not mention the angelic intermediary, but focus their attention directly on the source of revelation. Whether one receives a revelation from an angel, a prophet, or apostle, the word comes from God and must be treated as such. Second, they immediately acted upon the message they had heard. They came with haste. They believed the dying announcement, and therefore their faith led to the proper response. They had to look upon and behold the Christ, the babe, There was no debate. There was no hesitation. They acted with haste, for they knew the incredible importance of the Christ child, the Savior of the world. They knew that nothing was more important and um, nothing was more special uh, existed on planet Earth than this babe. They made haste with joy and great anticipation. And this is how biblical faith responds to Christ. It must see him. It must worship him. It must adore him. They soon found Mary and Joseph with the babe lying in the manger. The angelic announcement was confirmed. They were eyewitnesses of the announcement and the truth of the announcement. The Christ child was found just as the angel had prophesied. Luke is establishing not only the reality of the incarnation, but also the fact that it had multiple eyewitnesses. Okay, this is very important. The incarnation The ministry of Christ, the redemption of Christ, it all occurred in history on earth. It's concrete. And then in verse 17, we are told that after they had seen him, they made widely known the message of the angel they had received. They told everyone that they could, that Jesus was the Christ and Savior. He was the Lord. He had been born in Bethlehem. They told people about the appearance of the angel. And then the angelic host praising God. These men revealed all. Now we can assume that they first informed Mary and Joseph about the angels, then all their family, friends, acquaintances and even strangers. They knew the angelic announcement was true. They knew that it was of critical importance to the whole world and they knew and they had a they had a duty to be witnesses of this crucial gospel message. And we're told the people who heard their message were amazed. I mean, it is amazing. It is amazing. And the story of the angels and the shepherds ends with Mary uh, pondering or meditating on all these things in her heart. Mary's faith was growing, it was developing. Everything about Jesus she was learning was placed within her heart for meditation and her own edification. And that's exactly what we should do with this message. That's exactly what we should do every time we read Scripture ponder it in our heart, meditate on it in our heart. The salvation is amazing. Think of the angels praising Christ, praising God. Let's not take this for granted, folks. This is really amazing. It's true. It really happened in history. It's absolutely true. So let's think about this and let's praise Christ. Let's praise God for his salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you've done by sending your son Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners. We thank you so much for this message. We thank you so much that it's been authenticated and verified through prophecy, through testimony, through eyewitness accounts. We trust it. We believe it. Increase our faith, Lord. Increase our love of your Son. Increase our love of you for what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.